This is Hormones The Inside Story, the podcast brought to you from the Society for Endocrinology, looking at the tiny things inside us, pulling the strings. I'm Georgia Mills. This episode, it's with us every day of our lives, and we're certainly talking about it a lot during 2020. It's been blamed as the cause of heart disease, strokes, weight gain, and declining mental health. But it's also an incredibly slippery concept that has been misrepresented and mischaracterized. That's right, we're talking about stress. Stress is talked about a lot, usually in terms of how stressed we all are and how to best deal with it. So is modern life overloading our stress levels? And what are stress hormones actually doing? Well, this episode we're going to try and find out. I'll be meeting some scientists who study stress and also someone who experiences stress to a much greater degree than most of us. What happens is I'm instantly, I instantly get the feelings and the emotions that I felt in that moment just come back to me. And finding out how hormone science might be able to help people like him in the future. So first up, let's get to the basics. What is stress? Stress is the perception of a person or an animal that he or she is under threat. Introducing Stafford Lightman, Professor of Medicine at Bristol University. Uh, It might be a real threat, so it might be a a lion charging towards you on the savannah, which is obviously a real threat. Or it might be something that you're really anxious and worried about, which might not actually be happening, but it's something that you perceive uh, that is a threat to you. It can be the stress of relationships, work, money. It looks different for different people, meaning studying stress is kind of difficult. It's absolutely not a scientific term. One of the biggest problems uh, in stress research is the word stress, because it means different things to different people, and it is not something you can easily quantify. Some people will find a particular situation stressful, which others won't find stressful. So one can't define stress as a particular situation. It is the way that individual interprets that particular situation. So I actually quite like talking uh, in front of lots of people, whereas certainly I know lots of people who would absolutely dread it. So can we actually say that today is more stressful than, say, 50 years ago? People who are saying they feel stressed, it it may just simply be that they're unhappy. People think they're living in the most stressed time society has ever had. And they talk about, you know, the stressed society, how difficult it is. But there, there, there is no way we can say that we are more or less stressed as a population than we were 10, 20, 30 years ago. Because there is no, one, there's no definition of what being stressed is from an objective point of view. And two, there's no way of measuring it hormone-wise. So it is an extraordinarily difficult thing to study in humans. So stress is something we're all really familiar with, but not everything we read about it is actually based in any science. And in fact, most of the discourse we hear about stress is that it's really bad. But Stafford doesn't agree. I mean, this is clearly of enormous survival value. And it's very, very important to have a good stress response mechanism. So why is stress so useful? Well, let's go through what actually happens in a hypothetical stressful situation. Picture the scene. You're wandering down the street and suddenly right in front of you, a great big tiger heading right for you. 
the first things that happens is that you stimulate your sympathetic nervous system. This is a very rapid response. This is the part of your nervous system we don't have conscious control over, things like heart rate and sweat glands. This releases noradrenaline at the terminals of the sympathetic nervous system, but also adrenaline from the adrenal glands. So there's this classical fight and flight response. That's the first active hormonal response. With high heart rate and sweaty palms, your body becomes a springboard ready to leap into action, pumping blood to your muscles and cooling you down. The second response, which is a little more delayed, which is probably delayed about 15 minutes or so, uh, is that your brain basically uh, activates your pituitary gland to release the hormone ACTH. The pituitary gland is a little bean-shaped area in our brain. It sits a little way behind our nose, and the hormone it releases, ACTH, causes the release of probably the most famous stress hormone. The hormone cortisol, which goes around the blood and has effects in all the different organs, almost all the different organs in the body, so it has effects on your cognition, so it helps your brain function well. Allowing you to focus on the problem at hand, spotting a good hiding place from this rampaging tiger instead of what you're going to have for dinner. It also releases sugar, like adrenaline also releases uh, sugar uh, from your liver. You need your blood sugar to go up to allow your muscles to have the energy to run away. It's adaptive, it's extremely important, it's extremely good for you. So your system is flooded with sugar in the form of glucose. This is biological leucosade, giving your muscles enough energy to go into full-on maximum overdrive and get you away from whatever the scary thing might be. So all of those things you have, so you have the rapid, rapid effects from the adrenaline and then the rather slower and more prolonged effects from the adrenal steroids like cortisol. This is an old system and an important one. I know we don't encounter tigers so often in our daily lives, but there are still things we, every now and then, do need to run away from. And even in our more daily, mundane stresses of deadlines and performances, this system is still useful. Take the example of the violinists. Yes, I mean, it's one of these things that people always say, oh, stress is bad for you, and, you know, if we, if we could alleviate your stress, uh, life would be so much better. Musicians felt, oh, God, you, you get up on stage, you stand up there with these hundreds of people watching you, and, and you're clearly extremely nervous. If only you could get over those stage nerves, surely you could play better. And the evidence was that people have treated these people with agents which would reduce their perceived stress levels. And actually, they play much worse. There's not the excitement. They don't actually put into it all their brain function, which they could do normally. So actually, they play much better when they're stressed. So actually being stressed can heighten your cognitive ability to do all sorts of things. So stress, even in our society, in this in this respect is actually good for you and not bad for you. So stress gets a bad rap, but we need it to survive and to do our best in testy situations. But the stress we've been talking about so far is something we call acute stress. This is a quick response enabling us to deal with a crisis. What if that same tiger is chasing you for days on end, popping out from behind every bush? Or you have a very stressful job or ongoing relationship breakdown? Then that acute stress becomes chronic. Certainly chronic stress is bad for you. 
This is Anne White, Professor of Endocrinology at the University of Manchester. She looks at a feedback loop in the brain that affects the stress response. The axis that I'm talking about is called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or the HPA axis. <laughs> Snappy name. Yeah, we all know and love it. <laughs> The HPA axis is a series of feedback loops in the body involving several hormones. You can see how complex the regulation of the release of cortisol is in the sense that we have two other hormones whose really main function is just to regulate the release of cortisol. And then cortisol feeds back and switches those hormones off Um, which then dampens down its own release. And so that's very carefully regulated. The stuff that is very useful short-term can become problematic if it's used again and again and again. Take the biological leucosate. Well, chronic stress can be dangerous in that if you chronically activate both the HPA axis and the uh, release of adrenaline then you are likely to have higher glucose circulating and that can lead to type 2 diabetes. You're more likely to put on weight and become obese and it can have effects on your cardiovascular system because you think about, you know, increasing your blood pressure when you're, you have an acute stress, but if that's happening all the time then you end up with, you know, high blood pressure or problems with the heart. So, yeah, chronic stress is tricky and it's difficult to define what what each of us think of as chronic stress. So some people thrive on, you know, um, stress, whereas other people um, find it very hard to cope with. Stress hormones clearly have a big impact on your body, but they can also have an even bigger effect on your mind. We're all aware of the unpleasant feelings of stress, like feeling overwhelmed, helpless, generally strung out. But those hormones can also affect another fundamental part of our brains, which can cause a big problem. We are looking at how stress affects memory. This is Vanessa Hennessy. She's a research graduate student at University College London. And if you're thinking that stress causes you to forget things, actually, it has the opposite effect. If you've survived an encounter with a tiger, it's a probably good idea that you can remember how you got out of that situation in case it or a similar situation occurs again. So having the fact that stress heightens your um, memory, you know, it's an adaptive feature. It makes sense that we don't forget how we escaped a stressful situation. So if it ever arises again, we can do the same thing or even avoid that situation altogether. And this, again, is thanks to those stress hormones. This um, leads to sort of a um, a sort of hyper alertness in certain parts of the brain which have receptors for um, cortisol. And these are... um, the hippocampus and the amygdala and a few other brain regions which have high density of these receptors. And this leads to a a hyper storage of these adverse memories. So the complex interplay of the stress hormones in our brains leads to the memory of the stressful event being laid down really strongly. If all is well, then these memories should be ultimately 
consolidated, stored in an appropriate way, either incorporated into your, your life history so that it's incorporated with the context it happened, you can make sense of it, that kind of thing. But again, if you're chronically stressed, this goes from being adaptive and useful to bad news. This can kind of overload some parts of your brain and the memory centre can actually shrink. So um, it's like a vicious circle because, of course, then that means you're on hyper alert um, and you see more things that are threatening and the chronic stress continues. And this has an impact on the hippocampus, which is very involved in memory, where in chronic stress, people suffering from chronic stress, you can actually see a reduction in the volume, um, the size of the hippocampus, because you're seeing neuron damage or not enough new neuron connections being made. But that's not all. In some situations, some very acutely stressful situations, this hyperacute memory doesn't get filed properly. What makes it different in when it becomes a psychological disorder is the fact that it hasn't the, the memory of this has not been properly incorporated with all your other memories, your autobiographical memory. So you it often loses its sense of context in, within the rest of your life's memories and it stands alone and is just this raw emotional quality. This out-of-context memory can cause lifelong problems. And in fact, this condition has a name. It's called PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Hello, my name's Will Foxton and I'm a journalist and I used to be a, uh, back in the day, I used to be a war reporter. I used to joke that essentially it, it meant um, a permanent holiday pass to the axis of evil back in the mid-2000s. So I used to go to basically any country that was on fire and hang around in a flak jacket, you know, just sort of trying to explain what was going on. Unsurprisingly, being a war reporter means you're certainly no stranger to stress. It is rough, and it, it obviously, you know, it plays on your it plays in your mind, and you see you see awful things, and awful things, and you've got no power to do anything about it. And while these awful events did happen regularly, there was one that changed his life. It was covering the Israel Lebanon war in two thousand six, and essentially, I was up in the right in the front line, and. Um, I was involved in what what is it, it was a battle. Um, there is a Wikipedia page which describes it as the Battle of Wadi Saluki. So it it wasn't like a skirmish or a firefight. It was a proper a proper battle that I got caught up in the middle of, uh, and I was taking shelter under an armored vehicle, and it got hit, and it burned. I saw quite a lot of people die at close range, but I saw one person in particular die very close, very very close to me. I didn't immediately break down at all. It was, I was, I was okay. I was fine we, when I got back to England, and uh, you know, I was still out there for like four more weeks after some of this stuff happened. And then I came back, and it was gradual. It was quite gradual over about six months, whereby I, you know, I was tired all the time, and I was. I found it very difficult to relax. I found it very difficult to sleep. And when I did sleep, I would, I would start having you know, very, very disturbing dreams. Not all the time, but enough that I noticed I would have, you know, disturbing and upsetting dreams. The first few times I, I got triggered, it was really traumatic, like really, really traumatic. And I became really concerned that I would break down in public. And, you know, it was sort of British, kind of, you don't want to be like reduced to kind of a crying wreck in the middle of a shopping centre or on a bus or, or anything like that, because it's really, it sounds so pathetic to say it, but it's really embarrassing if something like that happened. When you have PTSD, something can trigger the intrusive memory. 
This can be something related to the incident, a sound, a smell. It can be something as inoffensive as a colour. But a very particular trigger of mine after that um, burning tank experience is if I hear a diesel engine idling. So, so you know when you're sort of sat on a bus and it sort of stops at a traffic light and you, you're sat at the back of the bus and you hear the diesel engine going like... Thump, 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 thump. Or when, like, for example, as is, is often the case triggering me, when an Ocado van parks outside your house and as long as it's a diesel engine and it's running, like, it just, it, it, it can. It's much less than it used to, but it, it can take me right back into that moment. And this isn't usually the Hollywood-style visual playback of the event, you know, in black and white with dramatic music. It's much more visceral than that. I will not, like, see the thing that happened to me above, in front of my eyes or or hear the, the things that I could hear at the time. What happens is I'm instantly, I instantly get the feelings and the emotions that I felt in that moment just come back to me. And it is absolutely, it's like an overpowering wave of, like, fear and horror and revulsion and and disgust at myself and upset. And it just, it's almost incapacitating. I've got to the point now where after quite, sort of quite a lot of therapy and treatment, like if I have an, a, if I am triggered, if I do have sort of, a, you know, an incident like that, like, you know, a kind of a half an hour sit down and then like a little walk around the block in like a in cool air will like sort me out. I just won't go on buses really. There's a diesel engine turning over quite close. It, it does genuinely upset me, which is so weird. Like I, even saying it, even after years of living with that, it's weird, it's odd that I can't sort of handle a diesel engine turning over. But that's just what it's like. Vanessa is working on treatments for PTSD. She's funded by the Bobby Charlton Foundation, whose focus is on the problem of landmines. But it's not just battles and weapons of war that can cause PTSD. Car crashes, assault, theft, even childbirth. PTSD can crop up a lot. The prevalence worldwide of around 5 to 7%. But then in some populations where there's repeated trauma and, and a lot of conflict, like in refugee populations, there can be up to 70, 70% prevalence. There are therapies which can help with the symptoms of PTSD, but wouldn't it be nice if we could try and prevent it from ever happening in the first place? And this is where we come full circle back to our stress hormones, because cortisol is actually really important in laying down these memories. It does seem to be something to do with um, the relative levels of cortisol to other hormones and also the timing um, relative to the trauma. Vanessa and her team had a theory. Perhaps if they could moderate the levels of cortisol after a traumatic event, maybe with a drug, this could stop the PTSD from ever forming. But there was one problem with how to test this. How do you look at a treatment for PTSD without giving your test participants actual trauma? It turns out you can go to Hollywood. We uh, show them a film and this film um, is a highly distressing film. It uh, has graphic scenes. We warn them before, but um, it does have scenes of um, interpersonal violence, death, sexual assault, that kind of thing. And it's a 15 minute long film. And then they watch that. And then we give half of our participants in this study hydrocortisone tablets, and the other half get placebo. Hydrocortisone is a medicinal form of cortisol. It's already given to people who don't naturally make enough. Vanessa could then ask people who saw this gory film how many intrusive memories surfaced in the following days and compare people who took hydrocortisone with those who didn't. 
um, hydrocortisone did really show um, a significant reduction in um, frequency of intrusive memories in the first few days um, after the film compared to those who got placebo. This will need replicating. Vanessa's first study was only in women on birth control, strangely enough because menstrual cycles seem to strongly affect the prevalence of PTSD. Another question for another day. And she's still collecting data. But they are hopeful because if this really does work, first responders could administer this to people after accidents or crimes and maybe stop some incidences of PTSD from ever forming. Any preventative measure will have to occur really quite soon after the trauma. Um, That's because of the the way memory works. So probably it will need to be within maximum of six hours and definitely before you you go to sleep. So one of the reasons that we need to find out exactly who, which treatment works for who best um, is because there's not going to be any room for trial or error. So if somebody's had some sort of trauma um, and they go to some form of medical centre, if they know, oh, yes, this works for this in this situation, then they can be given it. So ironically, a stress hormone could have beneficial effects on reducing the worst kind of stress outcomes. But it's still early days and her work is ongoing. And while PTSD isn't as rare as you think, it's still not nearly as common as the stress many of us feel in our daily lives. But the good news there is that there are some ways we can reduce stress. I asked each guest what they thought. There's some interesting research done on um, sort of moderate exercise, which doesn't seem to be just good for cardiovascular health, but seems to, via a receptor system um, called the gabrinergic system, does seem to have an impact on stress and also seems to change the behavioural response to stress. This was carried out in rodents, focused very much on voluntary exercise rather than forced exercise. So I think possibly the take-home message is also do an exercise that you enjoy rather than you're sort of doing just for the you know sake of it. And obviously don't do it to excess because excess uh, exercise is also quite a stressor. But just don't be sedentary, I think. Uh, Exercise also improves your sleep patterns and sleep, uh, different cycles of sleep are very important. So try to sort of keep to as regular sleep pattern um, as possible. That helps um, reduce stress in general. I like the advice about not doing exercise you don't like. (laughs) (laughs) That's most of it at the moment. Well, exactly. (laughs) Contact is also extremely important. This can be with other people, or indeed with animals. And White's new puppy is certainly moderating her stress, for better or for worse. When you stare into those liquid eyes and you sit and cuddle her, it is like having a very big or a very small teddy bear. But on the other hand, um, trying to stop her chewing my computer leads and my shoes (laughs) has stressed me no end. (laughs) While Stafford says that anything you feel like chills you out probably is a good thing, but you should keep a sceptical view of these magical de-stress cures that claim to be proven to reduce stress. I am quite sure that a lot of these yoga and things like this that people do can be very helpful, and the person will know whether they're helped or not. And if if an individual feels better and feels they can cope better when they've had a course of yoga or whatever it might be, then that's great. But I would be perfectly happy with that individual's reporting back that they feel better and they're able to cope better. And that's a bit that matters. But if you ask for objective indices of reducing stress, the the evidence isn't good. There's a little bit, but it's pretty airy-fairy. So basically, do what works for you. If colouring in meditation makes you feel better, great. Keep it up. 
or try some exercise, just try and find one you enjoy. But the big takeaway is that while stress can be a problem if it overloads and causes PTSD, or it's chronic, putting pressure on our systems every day, in general, a little bit of stress isn't something to be afraid of. It helps us survive and get through tricky events, through this complicated action of cortisol and adrenaline. It gives us the mojo to blast through a deadline, or even just have the energy burst we need to run for that bus. And if you have particularly bad luck, it might give you a better shot at escaping a tiger. Thank you to Vanessa Hennessy, Willard Foxton, Anne White and Stafford Lightman for their help with this episode. Next time, it's the last episode in the series, and we're not actually going to be looking at hormones themselves, but at the chemicals all around us that can mess around with them. How dangerous are endocrine disruptors, and is it possible to get away from them? You and Your Hormones is a podcast from the Society for Endocrinology. You can find reams of information about hormones at yourhormones.info. You can follow them on Twitter at SOC underscore E-N-D-O, or you can find them online at endocrinology.org. This show was put together by me, Georgia Mills. Katani is the executive producer, and it was made by First Create the Media. Till next time, goodbye. <laughs>